Hi there, it's Megan Mitchell from Agents of Change. Thanks for checking out my podcast. If you enjoy the content, please check out my ASWB test prep courses for the bachelor's, master's, and clinical exams. Each Agents of Change course includes more than 30 key topics that closely match the ASWB KSA content areas. Our content is great for both auditory and visual learners and includes video walkthroughs, supplemental materials, hundreds of practice questions, and twice monthly live study groups with me. You can learn more and get 10 free practice questions at agentsofchangeprep.com. Hi there. It's Megan Mitchell, the founder of Agents of Change Social Work Test Prep. And today I'm here to go over and break down the four hardest ASWB practice questions that we see here at Agents of Change on our mock exams. And what do we mean by hardest? We don't mean that they are the most difficult, but these are often ones that people get incorrect at the highest rates. So we wanna make sure that you see these questions and that you understand the rationales for them. But first, we wanna celebrate you. Happy Social Work Month. If you're tuning in in the month of March, we wanted to give you a shout out for all the wonderful work that you do all year round. And in order to celebrate Social Work Month this year, we would love for you to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We have a ton of programming. So we have free printables, we have free calendars, and we are going to have giveaways and free content. So make sure you follow us on social. And if you are looking to buy study materials, you can use code SW2023 all month long to get $10 off any of the products that we offer. So make sure that you, if you are interested, that you check this out and you use our code. So let's go ahead and jump into those four questions. And like I said, these were questions that we saw a lot of students were getting incorrect. And I think you'll be surprised that a lot are actually content or recall questions. So let's go ahead and jump in. As you may know, there's three type of questions on the ASWB exam, depending on the level you're taking, bachelor's, master's, or clinical, you're going to see a variety of these. And think of this kind of like a hierarchy. Recall is going to be the easiest and it moves up in difficulty as you move towards reasoning questions. So recall questions, they require you to remember a fact or a concept, and you really have to have knowledge of that to be able to recall the information. The second level of questioning are application questions. These questions require you to recall basic information. In addition to that, you have to apply that information to a case scenario or real life situation. So it requires not only that you know the information, but you can apply it in different settings and different scenarios. Our last type of question is reasoning, and these are the most difficult because they require different levels of critical thinking. And they require that not only do you recall the information, that you apply the information, but that you can synthesize the information so you can summarize what it's saying, examine details, weigh what's important and what not be important, and problem solve. A lot of times ethical dilemmas might fall under reasoning questions. So here is our first question. See if you can answer this one. This is one that, that our students frequently got incorrect. Number one. You are working with a six-year-old boy in a school setting. During a play therapy session, the student reports that his sister has a boyfriend who he doesn't like. When you inquire further, 
The boy acts oddly and states, I just don't like him. These comments make you feel uneasy. How do you best respond in this situation? A, make a CPS report as there may be abuse or neglect occurring. B, document the boy's statements and follow up with the parent regarding the statements. C, reframe the question for the child to get more information about the situation. D, ask the boy to act out or use toys to explain why he doesn't like the sister's boyfriend. So what do we know here? We are in a school and we're in a play therapy session and you should know a little bit about what play therapy is. Play is the medium in the language of children. In the session, the boy says he doesn't like his sister's boyfriend. He acts odd and says, I just don't like him. You feel a little bit uneasy. How do you respond? So let's start to eliminate answer choices. We remember, we do not want to lead a child in any situation. So we would not do C or D. We would not reframe the question for the child to get more information. That would be probing. And if there is suspicion or of abuse or neglect, that's a big no-no. So we might ask follow-up questions, but we are not going to reframe the same question to get an answer that we like. So we got to stay away from that. And then in, we would never ask the child to act out or to explain why he doesn't like something that's not really what play therapy is for um so a lot of themes come out in play therapy right it's the way that they communicate they might be resolving conflict but we would not want to prompt them by saying use these toys to explain further that's inappropriate at this point so what do we do do we make a cps report as there could be abuse or neglect or do we document the boy's statements and follow up with the parent regarding I will say most commonly people select A, make a CPS report, and that is incorrect. The correct answer here is actually going to be B, document the boy's statements and follow up with the parent regarding. Because remember, we never want to interpret without information. We have nothing yet that suggests there is abuse or neglect happening. He did not say anything. He said, I don't like him. He's acting oddly. This could be a variety of different things. We need to think of age appropriateness. And we don't have any information at this point that abuse or neglect is occurring. So even if you make a, you could always make a report. However, for test purposes, we don't have enough information yet. So what you would want to do is you'd want to document, right? So in your notes, um, however that you do that in your setting, you'd want to make sure that you note this because you'd need to be noticing if there's themes, if this comes up in other sessions. And then I would follow up with the parent or guardian and just say, um, you know, this has come up. I just wanted to make you aware. And you don't need to give specifics, right? But you can be broad with protecting confidentiality at the same time. But we don't want to immediately jump to A and think that CPS report is needed. We don't have enough information yet. So the best response would be document, follow up with the parent, kind of get more information that way, especially due to the age of the child. That would probably be kindergarten or first grade. We don't have evidence of abuse or neglect at this time. Acting out would be appropriate because you want to take the child's lead and you want to reframe from, like I said, probing or pushing the child in any direction. So we don't want to ask questions in a way that is going to prompt a, a certain response.
Question number two. Try this one out. You are working at an agency and are involved in a task group regarding workplace sexual misconduct prevention. The group facilitator asks if anyone has any examples to share regarding misconduct. You have an example to share, but don't want to upset anyone as you know it may reflect poorly on the agency. You choose not to disclose. What is this an example of? So you're asked in a workplace setting to bring up any issues regarding sexual misconduct. You have something to share, but you're choosing to not disclose because you have an idea that you think something's going to be desirable by not disclosing. So what is this an example of? A, groupthink. B, group polarization, C, halo effect, or D, bystander effect. So important here is you need to know this is a task group. So because of that, we can eliminate C and D because those do not refer to group processes. So we're between group think and group polarization. I will say the most common answer people pick are answer choice B, group polarization. However, the correct answer is A, groupthink. And what is groupthink? Groupthink is when a person makes a decision that seems desirable to the whole of the group, even if that is not something they personally agree with. So they're going with the group in order to, ch to achieve consensus or to achieve a desired result. So here, they know that they don't want to shake things up. They know that it might reflect poorly. So they are choosing not to disclose. They're going with the thinking that is put forth in the group. And a little bit more about groupthink here. Groupthink is not a very positive way that you want groups to be because it stifles their ideas. They want to just go with a group consensus or they just agree to decisions in the group. They might not choose to disclose. And what happens is in groupthink, there's no diversity of ideas or opinions, right? Because they could fear what the outcome's going to be. They might not, they might want to avoid conflict, or in this case, they are trying to avoid reflecting poorly upon the agency, even though they have important evidence to add. Like I said, most people choose group polarization, but that is not the correct answer here. In group polarization, groups might select an option that's more extreme than any one person in that group might select. So a lot of times, maybe in cults, you might see some group polarization. There might be people who more are more neutral or in the middle about their opinions. And the longer they're in the group, they start to pull towards different extreme ideas. So that is not what's happening here. Group think is what is this is the best answer selection here. So I encourage you to go through answer choices A, B, C, and D and come up with your own examples for each. Question number three, another recall question. Which of the following is an example of malingering? A, a parent withholding medication from a child so they can play the caregiver role for the child. B, a person with frequent hospitalizations and doctor visits, although no known medical condition. C, a person who falsifies medical documentation to go on paid leave. And 
The last answer choice is D, a person who is fearful of having a serious mental or physical illness. Here we're looking for malingering. So this actually, you need to know what malingering is and you need to be able to apply it. So what do we think here? What do we know about malingering? Malingering is intentionally faking an illness or an injury or a condition for personal gain. So this someone that would be involved in malingering, they're wanting to achieve some sort of goal. So the correct answer here would be C, a person who falsifies medical documentation to go on medical leave, right? They might be faking an illness here, falsifying medical documentation so that they can get the outcome of going on medical leave, although there is no medical condition. So for this one, malingering, like we said, it's motivated by an external incentive or benefit here, going on paid medical leave, right? There's no reason they need to go on medical leave. So they feigned symptoms, forged, and now are going on paid medical leave. Answer A, that would be an example of fascist disorder by proxy. It used to be no known as Munchausen's by proxy. Answer B would be an example of somatic system disorder or medically unexplained symptoms. And answer D is an example of illness anxiety disorder. So the answer choice of malingering would be best for answer choice C, best aligned there. I'm trying to think of other examples of malingering. This could be people who fake slip and falls at work, end up suing the work to get money. Um, like I said, the goal here, it's done intentionally and it's for some sort of gain or benefit. Question number four, and this one's really tricky, but you need to have some knowledge about anorexia nervosa and you need to be able to apply it to the following examples. Which of the following is not true when treating patients diagnosed with anorexia nervosa? A, treating anorexia nervosa should be done in conjunction with a medical professional. B, anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of any mental disorder. C, amenorrhea is common in women who are diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. Or D, women are at a higher risk of dying of anorexia than their male counterparts. Three of these answer choices are true and one is not true when working with patients with anorexia, diagnosed with anorexia. So let's go through these different three and decide which ones are true. Answer choice A, treating anorexia nervosa should be done in conjunction with a medical professional. Absolutely, because the risks are so high and there are many medical complications that go along with this disorder. So Anorexia should definitely be treated in conjunction with a medical professional and a multidisciplinary team. B, anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of any mental disorder. People often do not believe this to be true. However, it is. And there's a variety of different research out there, but one in 10 people may die due to medical complications. Um, that are associated with anorexia nervosa. And you have to think a lot of times they might not seek treatment. It might be too late 
in the progression of the disorder for them to seek treatment. And a lot of times there are fatalities because th there's medical complications. So those could be related to imbalances in the body, organ failure, the body just simply starts to shut down. So there actually is a very high mortality rate, which is why it is so important to um, treat this disorder early and it has to be a pretty intensive treatment plan. C, amenorrhea is common in women who are diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. That is actually true as well. And amenorrhea means no longer getting a menstrual period. And like we know, there's a lot of imbalances with the body depending on the severity of anorexia nervosa. So this could be common in women who are diagnosed here. Answer choice D is incorrect. Women are at a higher risk of dying of anorexia than their male counterparts. Males are actually at a higher risk. So I want you to, for a moment, think about why that might be. Why might males be at a higher risk of dying than women? The answer is because males represent around 25% of individuals diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. However, they don't seek treatment at a very high level. This could be due to stigmas, cultural pressures, societal pressures, and they're not often diagnosed in a time that is helpful or beneficial. And sometimes they don't get treatment at all. And as we know, the mortality rates can be quite high if this diagnosis goes untreated. So they are at a higher risk of mortality rates. And that's simply because they're not seeking treatment at the same level that females would be. So that one's very, very, very tricky and very complicated. So how did you do on these four questions? They are definitely not easy ones and they require a little bit of recall and application for these. So um, make sure you review them and you understand the rationales for each because these are our most common ones that people get wrong. If you are looking for more ASWB study content, check out our study materials. We have tons of things up for you on our website, agentsofchangeprep.com. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out at agentsofchangeprep at gmail.com. We would be happy to help you out and answer any questions that you might have. And of course, thank you for tuning in. I hope you found this helpful. I wish you the best of luck on your study journey, wherever you are in that process. And remember, you got this. Believe in yourself. Happy Social Work Month.